Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, I am chatting to Andrew Stephen, who is the CEO of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, also known as the SRA. Now, I think it's very fair to say that over the last decade or so, we're all trying to do our bit to help the planet. Whether it's getting rid of single-use plastic or recycling more, we know that we should be doing as much as possible to reverse things like climate change. But actually, there's one area of our lives that trumps all of that effort, and it's what we eat. As you're going to hear in this week's conversation with Andrew, the power of your appetite is utterly phenomenal. As an individual, what you choose to eat and where and when you choose to eat it represents your biggest impact on the natural world. As you'll also hear, nothing is straightforward about the choices you're going to make. For instance, soy on one hand might be praised for replacing dairy products, but criticised on the other for its part in the deforestation of the Amazon. And that's why the SRA is such a brilliant organisation. It helps restaurants and diners to find their way through the maze and to understand how they can be become more sustainable in a range of practical and achievable ways. So much to learn. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Andrew Stephen from the SRA, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. Uh, before we start, can you just explain, I've just wandered around slightly lost around some funny little canals and stuff. Can you just say where on planet Earth are we today, please, Andrew? <laughs> Uh, sure, yeah, we're tucked away on the canal between Old Street and Angel in North London. Right in the heart of the city. Um, right, so I want to talk about the SRA, the Sustainable Restaurant Association, and what you do, but I want to step back in time slightly before we do that um, and just ask a little bit about, you know, what, what got you interested in the planet? I read a little bit about uh, you going to Kruger National Park when you were 11 years old, but do you remember how far back you became interested in uh, the wonderful planet Earth? Yeah, uh, great question. I guess, uh, although I don't look like one, um, I'm technically a millennial. Uh, I'm almost the oldest possible millennial uh, available. So I, you have I got guess quite a lot of facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> you could point at uh, you know any number of kind of crass stereotypes about my kind of age and upbringing as a kind of reason to explain why I kind of care about the planet. But I think personally. Um, I was born in Northampton, uh, which is a sort of fairly flat and not particularly kind of wild place. I think about 10 miles away from my parents' home is the furthest point in the UK away from the sea. So, uh, you know, we're surrounded by a lot of warehouses and a lot of kind of uh, picking and packing jobs and, you know, the occasional roadkill badger. But uh, I was lucky enough, just after uh, Nelson Mandela got elected, um, my dad was working for a kind of railway company and he was posted over to South Africa. So in 1994, uh, I was uh, 11 years old and I spent the next kind of eight summers um, in South Africa, um, kind of with my mum and dad. And yeah, it just completely blew my mind, I think, as a kind of 11, 12, 13 year old boy kind of 
visiting the Kruger Park and seeing, I guess, um, somewhere truly wild on that scale uh, with the kind of biodiversity. And it, it just sort of left a, a huge impression on me, I think, um, that there was something there that was worth um, celebrating and, and worth protecting. Um, and then I guess, yeah, my, my career kind of, um, you know, I'm also a little bit greedy, like a lot of other millennials, I, you know, I'm sort of quite self-centered. So uh, how do you save the uh, biodiverse environments whilst also, um, you know, having a kind of level of comfort in your own life? And I, I think um, I've made a, a number of, I guess, sort of punts at doing both um, since then. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, and, and just that yeah, ability to travel and see it. I think it's that uh, you need to travel and see it to be inspired to want to save it, but just the process of traveling to get there kind of has an environmental impact. So it can be, uh, it can be complicated. I think kind of um, human geography, what's that? That was your degree, I think, was it? Can I just it was, ask, what, yeah. what, what, what does that involve? Yeah, it sounds I'll, I'll, fascinating. I'll apologize on behalf of all geography students. Um, I, I think human geography is the study of people and place. So it's looking at how, uh, society um, affects and is affected by natural environments. Okay. So it's kind of like a bit of sociology, a bit of economics and a bit of biology all wrapped into one. Amazing. Um, I think, you know, geography as a discipline is a kind of funny one. I think it's sort of slightly searching for its soul. It, it started as a thing because we needed to map <laughs> the outline of countries and uh, geographers were incredibly useful uh, economic assets. Um, but then once kind of satellites were launched, geography was slightly scratching for its kind of reason to be. So it's sort of gone off and buried itself into various other disciplines. Yeah. So um, I did uh, joint honours geography and philosophy, which I guess um, asks the question, why are we here? Yeah. Well, no, I think I think I can see it, uh, yeah, it related at least m more into humanity than if you'd studied accountancy and law and stuff like that, I suppose. There was some big picture stuff going on. Um, and then you end up going to uh, help in the, in the Tsunami Volunteer Centre in 2005, is that right? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I was doing the normal after university backpacking thing. Um, myself and my ex-girlfriend had spent the previous nine months in um, Central America and Fiji and places like that, just sort of traveling around, reading kind of quite pretentious literature. Um, and then the, the tsunami happened and we just felt like we wanted to do something uh, kind of more meaningful than sort of skim across the surface of places and send postcards back home. And um, there was this incredible need and we were already out in Southeast Asia. So uh, we found a local NGO that... Um, you could just rock up and start helping rather than needing to pay six grand and fill in loads of forms. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a unbelievable experience. We were there in the end for about eight months. Um, sort of at the start, it was pretty grim, kind of like, you know, sort of direct medical emergency stuff. Um, but over time we, um, got more into kind of rebuilding programs and teaching in schools and that kind of thing. I was there during the kind of Rambutan and Mangosteen season, um, so they're two soft fruits that uh, are pretty much in everyone's gardens in Thailand. And uh, yeah, when everyone's tree was ripe, um, I think every kid in my class would bring me in a kind of carrier bag full on a daily basis. Wow, so, nice. You know, kind of definitely a bit of a citrus overload. Yeah. Uh, and were there any particular memories that stayed with you, I suppose, from that time? Because I'm, I'm guessing there's the famous quote, and you can't join the dots looking forward, only looking back. But was there some stuff there that you think led you into this, uh, what's now become a long-term career around ethical kind of business and, and so social responsibility? 
Yeah. Was there something then that happened that led you to that? Did you realise at the time that was the likely trajectory or did that come later? Uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's not easy being kind of idealistic and young and wanting to kind of build a career. And I think um, I certainly didn't sort of take an epiphany out of Thailand that I then said, right, this this gives me really clear direction going forward. I think like most people, I've sort of moved to the city and then sort of iteratively bounced around a bit from job to job trying to find uh, something that leaves you smiling at the end of the week and leaves you feeling like you've got some energy when you wake up on a Monday morning. And um, I don't know, I, I think the main memory I take from my time in Thailand was just even though what we were doing was objectively pretty horrible um, in terms of the experience you were having, as a group at the end of the day, uh, there was such an amazing sense of kind of everyone was quite up. And I think there's something about purpose there that just shone more clearly than any kind of corporate board definition of purpose that I've ever seen since that um, even if you'd sort of been diving and pulling bodies off a reef, at the end of the day when you were all sitting around having a beer, um, you felt genuinely satisfied with what you'd done that day. Uh, and actually people were quite happy while they were doing it. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a jag and I've been chasing ever since. Yeah. I often get asked what got me into hospitality. And I travelled for a couple of years around Asia. And uh, I always tell the story that actually, despite the BBC trying to convince us that, you know, everybody on planet Earth is an arsehole and wants to behead you and, and we're all obnoxious and really want to have wars, actually, fundamentally, most people on planet Earth are lovely. And it was mm. particularly the poorer the places that I went to in, in, in Laos and Vietnam and Tibet and China, and you'd walk into these little villages that have so little from a Western perspective, you know, no electricity and running water and limited education, yet their willingness to kind of smile, look you in the eye, open up their door, pour you a cup of tea, you know, kind of break bread with each other. And, and the fact you could have really, you know, kind of good, uh, experiences, positive experience with people without language. And, and there was no, you know, financial transaction here. It was just genuine human to human hospitality of, of enjoying kind of conversation and learning mm. about different cultures. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an inspirational place, I think, you know, to, to go back to those kind of places and see yeah, humanity at its, uh, at its best from a, from a basic kind of, you know, mm. level, but at its worst sometimes from a, from a poverty and opportunity. Because what I couldn't get away from when I was traveling is that, you know, I still fundamentally had a passport and a credit card and that most of the people I was spending time with didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, so, yeah amazing places. So um, you come back to, to London and over the next 10 years, you do a, a variety of jobs and manage to squeeze in an MSc in business strategy and environment. So is, is this the point where you start to get that kind of, uh, I don't know, juxtaposition or, or actual, you know, benefit of the fact that business, it sounds like business strategy and environment almost sounds like a contradiction, but uh, how was that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of oxymorons, you know, maybe sustainable restaurants, another one, but yeah. I, I, I think that um, I did that master's course because um, the job market's very competitive and people needed something more than a kind of very earnest story and look in the eye about how I really cared and knew about kind of um, environmental ecology and wanted to put that into my job. So uh, it was just a bit of a labeling up of what I already knew and was interested in, but uh, nothing quite says it like a kind of recent academic qualification. So yeah, it was pretty full on. I was working full time and did that kind of uh, two evenings a week at Birkbeck. But um, if anyone gets that opportunity, I think it, it it's, it's been tremendously useful to me, I think, to kind of be able to kind of, it gives you a much better platform to go and talk to different employers about what you've done. 
And then also off the back of that, uh, Two Degrees. So before you come into SRA, your last role was with Two Degrees, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Can you just explain, because that looks like, you know, just doing a little bit of research last night, so it was on their website, that looks like a pretty uh, impressive uh, organisation, but with a phenomenally difficult task, because that's really dealing with huge companies. Can you just explain a little bit about what they do? Yeah, really cool business. So um, James and Martin, who set that up, uh, are, are good friends of mine, and um, I wish them well. I think... Uh, I didn't enjoy the kind of two-hour commute from Islington to Oxford, which was, was part of the reason I don't still work there. But um, so basically, what Two Degrees are doing is is they're trying to kind of share knowledge within supply chains in order to cut energy, water waste, and carbon. So they're kind of going after very tangible reductions in the kind of environmental intensity of some of the value chains that um, often the biggest companies are involved with. So people like Unilever and people like ASDA. Um, work with two degrees and they connect all of their suppliers onto the system and then they try to drive energy water waste carbon reduction through kind of sharing of ideas and sharing of data essentially so it's a funny world in which you know once you decide to care uh, about any of this environmental stuff for anyone in business the kind of solutions are then equally quite hard to understand it's not like you jump over the kind of you know mystery fence of caring and then suddenly it's really obvious what to do and if we could just make sure that once people decided to care they instantly made the best available choice um there's quite a lot of power in that um and everyone learning from each other's mistakes so that's the kind of thing that two degrees do um they're sort of trying to take some really big bites out of um the kind of environmental intensity of uk manufacturing through their manufacture 2030 program and um, I was involved in uh, a couple of projects with kind of Asta and Unilever as well. Right. So even at that level, because I've interviewed lots of your members and we'll come on to the SRA very shortly, but at a small level, you know, it's very easy, well, not very easy, but you know, you can very quickly make change to your environmental impact. But it's it's hard to imagine that at that level, A, that, that it's a genuine desire. I think sometimes I think the public are probably sceptical as to whether they're uh, primary motivation is the shareholders and, and the city and trying to make cash and B, just at that level, you know, what change can you make? And, and, and I suppose the potential impact is huge, but they've got to have the desire. Were there any particular examples, I guess, that, uh, that, that big companies were doing and, and, and was there a, you know, what was their motivation behind that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm as much of a cynic as the next guy. Uh, I, I think my actual direct experience, though, rather than the kind of editorial line I've absorbed from 20 years reading The Guardian, is that even the largest businesses um, are full of individuals who care just as much as you'll find people caring who work for smaller businesses. Um, and, and actually, those individuals will have kind of slightly different sets of tools in terms of uh, power and uh parameters if you like so I, th I think what we did at two degrees was we basically found individuals within large businesses that wanted to drive change and and thought quite carefully about what bits are uh, up for grabs and what bits aren't um i guess you know you're not going to get too far in terms of influencing business on sustainability if you're a moral purist i think um, it, I, I don't see it as an either or about trying to drive shareholder value and making some positive change. I think the key is trying to find something that you can objectively measure and then achieve rather than just stopping at a kind of vernacular set of sentences about intentions. And I think what Two Degrees did very well and, and what I tried to bring to the SRA is kind of 
measurable reduction in greenhouse gas intensity of the uh, pound of profit that uh, that company is making. Um, and I think we need to kind of do that across the entire um, economy, not just sort of, I guess, demonize some and, and achieve it with others. I think, you know, there's a genuine choice about, you know, the Sustainable Restaurant Association, for example, and, and we get quite a lot of flack for our inclusivity. I think, you know, there, there is a theory of change that suggests that we could focus on patting on the back the already sustainable and we could do that exclusively and it would be a ton easier uh, and my team would have you know easier friday afternoons um but i think when we then sit down at the end of the year and say what's happened differently in the world because we exist i think we'd have had a shorter list um so yeah a bit of a rambling answer no no, no i, 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 think... I, I, I we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that because that complexity of yeah, how you fundamentally need to have a relationship with big companies. I'm, you know, I have the same uh, situation in the fact my my fundamental ethos in in the restaurant world is, you know, buy local, buy sustainable. Uh, you know, know where produce comes from. And then there's a reality that, you know, Savion Blanc comes from New Zealand, or some really good Savion Blanc comes from New Zealand. Coffee mm. comes from around the world. So when there's a local season for strawberries and asparagus, buy local. Uh, but certain things, yeah, need to need to travel globally. Uh, and then we rely on big companies sometimes to supply that. So in the booze side of it, you know, we have big, huge, you know multinational companies like Diageo so we can't always just work with our local yep. fishmonger and his day boats and stuff like that yeah so. I mean don't, don't get me wrong I, I I think we'd certainly benefit and you know the work I did with two degrees and the work I did with the SRA would certainly benefit from clearer better intentioned legislation and regulatory environments which placed a different incentive on business I'm certainly not trying to say that uh, we shouldn't aim for that but I, I think that if you look, for example, at what inspired a lot of the companies that Two Degrees work with to take part in that kind of initiative, um, it's the increasing measurability of environmental outcomes of the value chains that they're in. So from the stuff they buy to what their customers do with it, that forces them to look a little bit beyond their own walls and say, well, we're really sustainable because we've got a um, solar panel on the roof. Um, and, and lots of kind of food businesses and FMCG businesses who are the main people that Two Degrees work with, um, the, the, the majority of the environmental footprint is either in the supply chain or in the kind of like customer. And actually the bit in the middle that they do, uh, you know, there's only so far they can go. And, and if they want to try and have any kind of claim around restorative or carbon neutral or net positive, they've got to try and somehow influence a lot about that supply chain and influence quite a lot of what their customers do. Yeah, and, um, and I guess the debate is, is that their responsibility? And, uh, and and they certainly have the opportunity to make a huge difference in the same way that restaurants can, you know, from the consumer perspective as well, from the supply perspective, which we're going to come on to. Yeah, so, I, I guess, sorry, I think, I think you know, in terms of responsibility, I think, I think you know, who decides? <laughs> I think that um, once your investors start thinking it is, then it is. For quite a lot of big businesses and it's something quite interesting if you look at some of our largest members um it's investor relations that i guess is our keenest conversation uh with them sustainable restaurant association then there'll be a number of people listening i'm sure who whilst it's exceptionally well known in the industry perhaps less so as a, as a consumer uh, brand i don't know we'll come on to that so can you just explain uh what is it and how did it come about sure so the sra for brevity uh, is a 10-year-old not-for-profit social enterprise uh, and member organization. So we work with all kinds of food service businesses from hotels to pubs to cafes to restaurants, quick service to multi-Michelin star. And we 
help them accelerate their sustainability. Uh, we do that through accreditation and we run a kind of rating scheme that kind of uh, has a kind of, you know, hilarious job of saying what percentage sustainable you are. Um, and then we do that through advisory and uh, kind of picking things and being quite specific about what to do. Okay. How many members do you have? We've got about 450 businesses that are members of the SRA and they've got about 10,000 uh, kitchens. Okay. Uh, can you can you give some examples? Because it's a real range, I think, from, I mean, I've interviewed some of your members who might be uh, tiny producers, Chalkstream Farm, I think I, I interviewed recently, uh, Cabrito Goats, but you've also got uh, bigger businesses. Can you give an example of a, a few? Yeah, so I, I guess um, we work with about a third of UK universities. We work with some of the kind of medium-sized contract caterers. Um, we work with quite a lot of fast-growing kind of businesses that are on that kind of independent interchain trajectory, I guess. So people like Rosa's Thai and uh, Oaxaca, uh, Leon, um, work with um, places like Le Manoir. Um, Raymond Blanc is our president and um, they're one of our founder members. Um, and yeah, a, a heady mix of kind of uh, independent restaurants around the country um, in places that you'd expect like Bristol, Brighton, London and Edinburgh. Okay. And do some of the corporate, the big kind of corporate chains get involved as well? They do, yes. Um, so we work with um, Young's and Weatherspoons in, in, in the pub world. Um, we work with uh, Pizza Hut, Nando's. Um, we've just um, had Mitchell and Butler join this year, who are the second largest hospitality business in the country, 1,500 sites. Wow. So that gives us our slightly showy offy 10,000 site number. Okay. Excellent. Um, so in sustainability terms, what, what would you say are the, uh, what's the main two challenges that the planet currently faces? Easy. Uh, the main two challenges we face are, um, I get, well, from a pure environmental perspective, it's uh, climate change, you might have heard of it, and biodiversity loss. I'm glad you answered with that because that was a slightly loaded, uh, <laughs> loaded question because they were the, the, the two that we're going to focus on. Um, so people understand climate change. I think that gets talked about a lot. It's in the news almost on a, on a daily basis. But, but biodiversity loss, probably less so. What do you mean by that? I guess biodiversity loss happens when um, agricultural systems expand uh, and when they become more intensive so um, it's a kind of proxy for the kind of reduction in the amount of wild space there is. So as um, you know, we turn our small farms into large farms, as we become kind of more chemically intense or more monoculture uh, in, in our kind of farming practices, they all contribute in the UK to kind of biodiversity loss. Um, I think some of the big ones globally are around um, I guess the outcomes that our food system creates for forests and for oceans. Um, deforestation is accelerating, not slowing down uh, everywhere on earth and uh, not least in some of the most biodiverse places like Indonesia and Brazil. And the chief cause of that is um, agriculture. And that's increasingly about commoditized agriculture that's part of our kind of international food system so even if you're getting british chicken uh, it's probably being fed on brazilian soy um, and i think that there are a, a number of uh, kind of i guess core things that are in our diet that are really accelerating that biodiversity loss from kind of coffee to sugar to palm oil um, to soy either that gets and turns into some sort of smug vegan tofu or uh, or is fed to cattle 
Amazing. So this is it's uh, the Omnivore's Dilemma. Have you read that book? Of course, because oh, yeah. kind of, <laughs> uh, you were reminding me of it a, a little bit there, and it is, you know, mind blowing and fascinating. But seems to be really unknown to to average Joe blogs walking along the high street has got no idea. You mentioned then about you know the, the, some of the vegan food and stuff like that. So people are maybe making decisions that they think is solving the problem, but I don't think they particularly understand the problem in the first instance, I suppose, let alone the solution. There's not a question. <laughs> there's just a, I, I, an I don't know about what, Yeah, I, I think there's certainly a lot of awareness raising to do, but there's also just a slightly unfortunate reality that like when we're hungry, uh, quite a lot of our humanity like goes towards just getting full. <laughs> uh, and I guess for businesses to try and find the right way of putting that information into the point of sale um, to people that are, I guess, quite single-minded and are kind of chasing fat, salt, sugar, speed uh, is a real challenge. Yeah, 100%. So average consumer walking along at the moment might be feeling hungry, walking past a few sandwich shops. You know, what's the actual... Because for me, the reason for having these conversations is about getting people to make conscious decisions rather than subconscious decisions, I suppose. So I think it is around education. The more we get people to understand, I don't think people want to destroy the planet. I don't think uh, that people are that selfish in general. They just don't necessarily know the problem and certainly, you know, e even less so uh, know the solution. So although we hear about a, lo a loss of biodiversity, you know, wh why is that actually important on a day-to-day -day basis? If we have this kind of impact, this, this loss of biodiversity, what, what problem does that cause us? Because we do all ultimately, as human beings, selfishly want to be fed. So we start with this kind of like, how do we feed the, you mentioned earlier, not 10 billion people anymore, 9.2 billion people. We want to feed them. Um, can we do that and respect biodiversity? And what's the problem with the loss? So I guess it's probably not my job to talk authoritatively about what will happen if we lose biodiversity. I, I guess there's probably far more kind of knowledgeable people than me on that, on that kind of macro point. I, th I think, you know, if you, I've, I've had a, uh, a son four months ago and um, look at every gift we've been given from the cards to the kind of little baby grows to the little books. Um, front and center is kind of animals and, you know, the lion and the snake and the elephant and the tree. And um, th th there's something unbelievably sad that we'd be um, turning our planet into uh, an environment for just ourselves. Um, I don't know how you quantify that uh, and, and you put that in a spreadsheet, but I think there's something quite fundamentally sad about uh, being involved in a generation that's, that that's happening on our watch, the kind of sixth great extinction event. Um, I, I think slightly more self-servingly, um, biodiversity is quite important in terms of um, the kind of resilience of our food system. We're only eating uh, an incredibly narrow band of the available uh, plants uh, and animals. Um, I think, is it the Cavendish banana that's kind of getting kind of pretty much wiped out by a particular parasite? And uh, it's something like 98% of all bananas are... Cavendish bananas now. There used to be over 5,000 different varieties, but uh, we've planted only one type. So I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's kind of a biodiversity full stop, which is just about uh, how nice an experience we have as humans on our earth. And then there's the kind of slightly more applied biodiversity as a sort of resilience thing in the food system. And I, I don't know which one's more important, really. But. Perfect. So that's a, that's a good answer. Um, can you give some examples of the sort of things people might be walking into a restaurant or a cafe and ordering that is having a damage uh, to the environment um, that people wouldn't necessarily think about? 
um, l locally sourced meat that is eating something that comes from Indonesia or um, the fact that there's palm oil in almost everything. I'd say are probably two of the kind of key ones. And uh, yeah, I, I guess the kind of the soy element, you know, like you said that soy has been a kind of real kind of hero in displacing kind of um, dairy um, for a while. But um, a lot of soy is kind of right at the heart of some of this kind of deforestation problem in the most tropical environments around the world. Yeah. So you can presumably get well-managed, uh, decent soy, can you, in the same way that you can get well-managed, decent palm oil? Is that is that fair? And what should we be looking for different to what we're doing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's certification in place for soy. I, th I think, you know, country of origin is probably kind of the simplest way of thinking about it. Um, what's going on in Brazil politically at the moment means that it's, you know, best avoided, I think. Um, yeah, European soy, soy from North America is grown in a, a high, a much greater regulatory environment. And there are certification schemes available for kind of soy. Um, and they're a lot further on than the palm oil ones, actually. So if you walk into a shop and buy a carton of soy milk, which is probably where a lot of people are being exposed to it the most, I suppose, uh, is it, does it specify on a carton of soy milk where it was grown? Uh, probably not, but there, there may be a kind of certification standard on the side that, that you should check. Okay. And in the UK, do we regulate at all to make sure that we do buy from managed sources? Or is, is the likelihood, would you say, that 99% of that soy milk you're buying on the supermarket shelf is coming from, from countries where it's not well managed? Or is the likelihood it's that actually it's probably pretty good? I wouldn't know on the percentages, but I, I think there's no kind of national regulation of that. So it'll be down to each individual company to make the right choice. Okay. And, and I think that, you know, soy milk in itself already feels like the sustainable choice. So the incentive for companies to kind of buy more expensive soy is, is probably fairly limited. Yeah. And this is, I think, where it becomes complicated for the consumer. And I have this conversation a lot as I've started going around the country. I've been having it a lot with my chefs for years. I remember having a chat with a, a chef probably 11, 12 years ago now about uh, where we source our fish and how we source our fish. And his answer to me was, it's God's choice whether there's any fish in the sea, which obviously I thought we could probably do a little bit better than that uh, and try a little bit harder. But I guess the big debate has been around wh whether it's our responsibility, again, who, who chooses. So the opportunity for me, for chefs... Uh, it's probably changing recently, but I would say traditionally most of the chefs that I've met have been interested, and, and from a training perspective, in the taste of food and the presentation of food. And actually, it's been really hard work to find people who who even know, let alone care, about where that food has come from. Now, I feel, as a restaurateur, in the same way that teachers should know more about education than I know and how to educate primary school kids, that uh, we work in this industry and in this sector that we should know more about where our food comes from. And actually, we're not just there to supply what the consumer wants to buy, but we should do our research and I like to think that people can look me in the eye and quiz me on, on, on where our food and our drink comes from and I can answer them. And I can't do that with everything. But would you say that we have a, a moral responsibility within the industry to, uh, to help educate, I suppose? I mean, you know, personally, I feel um, that it's just more interesting to, uh, you know, to, to include things other than taste into our definition of quality. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't push that from a kind of moral perspective. I think it's 
um, up to everyone to find their own kind of moral resting place that they're comfortable with. And, you know, modern life is full of hypocrisy. I think that fundamentally, uh, if you're defining quality uh, without really any sense of welfare, provenance, um, you're probably missing out on more interesting opportunities. And I think as businesses, you know, the, the hospitality world's oversaturated and how do we differentiate? Um, I think that there's a tremendous potential to, I guess, follow the path of more sustainable choices um, and in doing so, keep your staff happier, attract new customers, build loyalty and maybe save some money. Mm. But access to knowledge, it almost feels like you need a course, you know, like so that, that example that you gave around soya is that people will go, right, okay, I understand that people are eating too much meat. So, uh, and, and certainly more and more people are coming in and ordering an espresso and wanting an alternative uh, to dairy milk. So they think, great, I'll just go to soy milk, but then don't necessarily know the next stage in the supply chain. Um, I wonder how, I suppose this is your job as the SRA, is it how do we get people to understand the full implications and to dive deeper into, into sourcing? People in restaurants or, or kind of uh, diners? Yeah, I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'm, I'm th- I guess it comes from, from either side, but I'm thinking the people in the restaurants themselves in the first instance. How do you, you know, chefs are busy. They're phoning up for their, for their fish order and they might have got, a, you know, a decent supplier in or, they, you know, they're getting their food, you know, or delivered at 7 a.m. the next morning ready for service. Um how do we educate them around the, you know, the deeper dive into the deforestation of, of Brazil as to where their soy milk came from? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's almost impossible, in fact, when, when you take all of the issues that exist to imagine that our theory of change is that we make everyone an expert in all of it. Um, so I, th- I think what we try and do at the SRA is we have this framework, these, these sort of 10 areas um, under kind of environment, sourcing and society. And it's our kind of, I guess, informed but ultimately subjective perspective on what it means to be a sustainable restaurant. Um, we feel quite confident that if you nail all of those, you're having a restorative impact on people and the planet. Um, but we don't say to restaurants or to people that work in restaurants that you need to kind of get to 100% on all of them because quite frankly, with how people value food and the kind of you know lust of convenience, um, it's, it'd be challenging to, I guess, connect a business that got full marks on every area with, with a kind of um, customer base in a, in a lot of urban settings. Um, but I think what we see happening is that um, people are becoming more aware of, I guess, the power of their appetites. You know, it, it's a bit bumpy and a bit disorganized and a bit kind of single issue and a bit reactive and a bit finger pointy. But if you look over the last couple of years, there's been a number of, I guess, rising tides of kind of awareness around kind of marine plastics or uh, uh, around kind of meat and flexitarianism and, and, and kind of, I, I think as if you're running a food business, um, you kind of need to raise your level of knowledge about your impacts on these 10 issues up to, I guess, a level of competence and then once you're there, you're in a position where you can have, you don't feel quite as threatened, I guess, by uh, what customers might suddenly say to you on Twitter, because you've basically got a way of answering their questions and, you, and you've made conscious choices about where you've been able to get to. Um, and then I think what we try to talk to businesses about is sort of becoming T-shaped. So kind of across the top, they've got a level of awareness on 
how well they're doing on all the factors, but then they pick one or two, uh, often one works quite well, to really go for. And that's where you get geeky and you learn and you you really plow into the resources and you invest the time. Because actually, you know, a, a food business or a restaurant or a cafe that sort of tells you about everything it thinks it's doing well, it's a bit like that person in the pub that's sort of just telling you about all the brilliant things they've done that week. You know, it's, it's not that any of them are fundamentally uninteresting, but they add up to something less than the sum of the parts. Uh, people go and sit somewhere else. And I, th I think uh, as a chef or as a restaurateur, uh, picking one thing to be better than most at uh, whilst having an awareness uh, across the top, across the 10 areas of our framework is a really good uh, time efficient and, uh, and kind of smart way of trying to navigate the complexity. Mm. And as the SRA, do you actually go off and... and proactively do the research into certain topics are you a, a kind of a, an access point i suppose for information where people want to dive, deep dive into a certain area do you provide that information yeah it's it's you know it's regrettable in a way the kind of uh, percentage of what we know that sits behind a paywall called membership um it's a slight annoying reality i'm i'm very proud of the fact that we don't get any kind of central government money and that we've built a kind of scalable business based on providing members things that they value um, there's hope there that we can uh, grow a lot quicker because of that. But I think a consequence is that quite a lot of what we know then ends up being behind a paywall. So our members have access through an event program and online community to uh, a real depth of knowledge and research that we're kind of pushing into being more like programs and curriculum and e-learning for people to kind of go on. So we've got two really cool uh, new initiatives, um, one of which is helping uh, restaurants have food waste and the other one is um, helping them really simply uh, understand the greenhouse gas uh, footprint of all the food they buy and we've turned those things into six-week programs that you can do for free but they're kind of only available to our members unfortunately. Okay. Yeah that's a tricky uh, debate for humanities and I remember reading an article it might have been a, a documentary that I watched around the fact that all of the uh, education books you know there's been um, I don't know if it was hundreds of thousands, certainly thousands of books written on any topic for, for the you know past humanity around uh, around science, around medicine, around just the way the planet works and all that kind of stuff. And then a couple of the big publishing houses bought up all of those books. And now the only way you can access those books is if you're a big university and you pay your subscription. So you've got all of that knowledge and all of that information fundamentally, again, behind a very expensive paywall in that example, because you've got to be a big, big university. I don't know, you must spend some time thinking about, well, that's, what's the solution? Is there a certain amount of stuff that you give away for free that then is a hook to try and get people involved? And have you thought about how you solve that on a bigger level? I mean, in our own small way, we've got a number of free things that every restaurant can do. So One Planet Plate is a campaign we have that asks you to put your most sustainable dish on the menu, uh, send us the recipe, label it up to customers, and we kind of help both promote that and um, also give you a bit of advice about what that might look like so it's it's quite light touch and chefy uh, but it's kind of free for everyone i think there's 1500 recipes on the site at the moment and, and half of those are from non-members so we, we think that's kind of cool because actually um we can't really be in the business of uh telling people to take their best seller off the menu uh we wouldn't be very popular if we did that so uh in a sense, a lot of restaurateurs would be more sustainable if people didn't come in and keep ordering nine nine quid cheeseburgers. So uh, if we can play our small role in helping a restaurant get good at driving more sales of their most sustainable dish, 
but then that's something quite practical that we don't put behind a paywall. We've also got a very quick uh, diagnostic call, tool called the Food Made Good 50, which um, takes about 10 minutes to fill in and helps you kind of see where you sit against um, everyone that's ever done that. And that's global. We do that in kind of Taiwan, Japan, and Greece as well. Um, and it gives you just a kind of quick two-page to-do list. Um, it doesn't really help you do it, but at least it kind of, you know, holds the torch in the right direction for people. And then with all of our campaigns, whether that's about reducing single-use plastic or reducing the footprint of your food procurement or halving food waste in six weeks, you're right, we give away a bit. Um, but I guess that's more of a carrot that's dangled to encourage people to come and become members. Um, I think, you know, I'd love it if we got to a point where uh, almost everything we currently do um, for our members was in the Creative Commons and in the public domain. Uh, interestingly, when we've tried that, we've, we've worked with a couple of landlords um, to make membership free for their tenants. Um, lots of people just never answer the emails. And there's something kind of weird about if you give it away for free, people don't value it. But um, It's true. I used, yeah. to, I used to sell gym memberships once in a, in a past life, and uh, that was always my debate with people, if you'd give them a free month. And I said, I can give you a free month to this gym and guarantee you that you won't come in and use it. Or if I charge you £2,000, I can guarantee you'll be in here four times a day for the next 30 <laughs> days. Mm. So, yeah, it, it is a motivation, I think. Um, you mentioned then about taking off bestsellers off the menu and the, and the, the, the challenge with that. So I think it's been fairly well publicised, particularly it feels in, in the last few months, maybe with the um, World Health Organisation coming out with its kind of uh, sustainable diet for the planet. But this thing around eating less meat as an example so clearly uh our you know in the west our, our desire to often eat meat three times a day is, is having a huge destructive um, impact on the planet and when you learn this information uh, as somebody who, who didn't come onto planet earth to kind of make the situation worse and as a restaurateur part of you feels right that's it you know i just need to take meat off the menu and it comes back to that education piece and then you realize that okay that will be the end of my business um how do we get that balance what's your thoughts i suppose from the sra perspective or from your personal perspective is it a case that we need to do more uh quicker otherwise there's not going to be a planet to protect or actually do you see this as being a little bit by little bit you know we take people on the journey and um, because as a restaurateur and that need to to actually run at a profit to pay the staff you 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 know we have that debate i suppose about how quickly to um to put into practice the stuff we're learning i think that on some level a most basic definition of a sustainable restaurant is that it's still open <laughs> and we don't ask people to make kind of martyr-like decisions. Um, we work with people like Hawksmoor, um, and I guess our ask is around kind of more veg and better meat. Um, I think we spent most of the last decade kind of encouraging people to kind of up the quality of the meat um, in terms of kind of welfare and um, other indicators. And in the last kind of year, we've really started being heavier on the kind of uh, meat reduction uh, message. I, I think it's kind of completely inarguable that um, beef and lamb in particular uh, are, are the kind of sharp end of the kind of embodied environmental footprint of your menu. So I think as a restaurateur, there's a kind of you know, make your own mind up, but I'd say moral imperative to use all the tricks of your trade to uh, nudge people uh, away from those. And and uh, but I I think that doesn't mean nudging people towards 
the burger restaurant next door, right? So I, I guess I guess that's the kind of complexity we need to hold on this one. Um, I think places like the Roebuck in Elephant and Castle, um, Jareth there is a, a, a great chef and kind of friend, and he's started putting kind of 50% lentil and mushroom in his beef burgers and no one even notices. Um, so I, th I think, you know, there are ways of doing it without sort of making a big kind of, you know, Moses-like set of commandments and, and kind of really preaching at your diners. Um, yeah, it, it just takes longer, I guess, doesn't it? So we've had the debate in, in our restaurant as I've learned more about it and changed my own diet, again, just down to knowledge, I think. Just, you know, there were things that I didn't know. And once, you know, we know things in the, in the same way that we changed our approach to what fish we sold a number of years ago, once we were fully aware of the impact of beef, we changed it. But I think the key change for us has actually been putting plant-based dishes wherever possible next to meat-based dishes and giving yep. people an alternative really obviously on the menu. So whereas before our vegetarian and certainly our vegan food might have been buried in the bottom right-hand corner as a bit of a token gesture, uh, now you know we'll have a, a burger and it will be a beef burger, a chicken burger and a plant-based burger. We might have a curry and it will be a chicken curry and a plant-based curry. Nachos as a plant-based and there's a traditional. Yep. And as much as possible trying to build it into the menu and just hoping that little bit by little bit people will make a choice and go, oh, you know what, I'm going to try that plant based burger today uh, and that we take them on that journey but I look at other kind of fully vegan restaurants and recognize that they're they're way ahead from an environmental impact but actually I think if you just tell people what to do there's there's less of a chance and, mm -hmm. and in some ways holding their hand and taking them on that journey and showing them bit by bit is a better solution absolutely and you know I wouldn't I wouldn't feel guilty about uh, you know meeting customer demands for meat still I, I, I think that you know we're trying to shift diets of uh, the whole system, right? Um, and it only really matters if we all do it. I think, you know, for every one flexitarian in Islington, you've got 100 people in China having their first cheeseburger. So, you know, we need everyone to do what they can on this, not just the vegan restaurants to be put on a pedestal and serve the people that have already made their minds up. You know, they can all keep doing that forever as we burn. Uh, we need to try and find ways of kind of nudging people in the mainstream around this kind of stuff. And there's some of the things that you've just mentioned there. We've, we've got a ton of resources on this about, I guess, how to um, push plant-based sales um, without preaching at your customers that I'd encourage people to come and have a look at. If you type SRA and food print, um, you, you'll, you'll find a lot of kind of information there. I think we're partnering with the WRI on their cool food pledge. And I think that's a really practical way to kind of think about it. That asks you to make a reduction of 25% in your greenhouse gas intensity of all the food you buy by 2030. Now, some people might say that's a bit slow. Uh, it certainly feels like quite a long while in terms of 11 years. But I guess if you're a brand that's kind of got meat in the title, uh, you know, those are the sorts of timeframes that it might take. And, and that's certainly in line with the overall um, need to halve the carbon intensity of the food system by 2050. Yeah, because I think, again, it's changing. But I think most people don't realise that they're doing their bit. They might be trying to recycle. They might be trying to uh, yeah, use less plastics. They're doing all of that. But actually... You know, what we eat is, is is the biggest kind of environmental impact, really, isn't it? I think, is it 25% is it of global emissions come from agriculture? It might even be higher than that. I don't know. Do you know yeah, there's it? various calculations depending on what bits you include. But I, I guess one we talk about quite a lot is that as, as an individual, your food choices are your biggest impact on the natural world because it's not just about carbon. I guess it's about like land use change. It's about biodiversity loss, deforestation, about water footprint. Um, so the food choices of each individual are there 
biggest impacts on the natural world by far. Hmm. I think I read something like on a plant-based diet, you need 1.5 acres of land per human being. And on a, on a meat-based diet, it's more like 120 acres or something like that. Predominantly because of the feed, it's just an inefficient system. Growing all of the food to feed the animal is fundamentally hundreds of kilos of, of, of food going in to grow, you know, a couple of kilos of meat, I suppose. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's areas that I guess people don't necessarily know. And when, when you talk about um, sourcing meat and sourcing better meat, I think we have this perception in the UK that we've got higher... Uh, welfare standards than maybe a lot of the world. Is that the case? And is it a case of buying British? Is it a case of buying European? And with what's coming potentially on the horizon with Brexit, although a certain amount of chicken already comes in from Thailand anyway, but maybe an influx of meat from America or from South America, uh, where should we be actually looking to buy better meat? I, th I, I think we have one of the most developed um, animal welfare certification regimes um, of anywhere on earth. Um, the number of different organizations that are kind of active domestically that are kind of certifying stuff at farm level. Um, uh, we also have a, a kind of, you know, relatively small scale set of farms in, in places like Wales, which kind of, I guess, lock, lock in some of those kind of benefits. Um, I think there's a, there's a few blind spots, though. I, I think, you know, in terms of feed, um, you can have quite high welfare um practice but um, have imported feed and, and that can be challenging um it's a really really complicated issue unfortunately I, I wish there was a kind of bit of a silver bullet i think that you know the the sort of simple thing you, you mentioned the omnivores dilemma I'd, I'd, I'd look at michael pollan's advice there and I, I think eat mostly plants and i think there is a genuine role for uh beef and lamb in our agricultural system there's a lot of kind of pasture that um, is going to be very difficult to convert into um, kind of plant-based agriculture. Um, but we, we need to kind of not shy away from the fact that uh, we, it needs to be a kind of, uh, you know, once a month, once a fortnight thing, not, not a three times a day. And I think, you know, the other thing to try and hold on to at the risk of even more complexity is that we, we shouldn't sort of demonize all meat and then sort of, celebrate all plants I, I i think you know there's there's a fair bit of peruvian asparagus knocking about in waitrose <laughs> you've got kind of avocado that are being grown in water stressed areas uh, and then flown in um I, I think we need to think about uh eating locally and seasonally as well uh, on on the plant thing and and not just simply demonizing meat Mm. And it's a, it's a really exciting way to eat if you do follow the follow the seasons. Having said that, you know, in Peru, from a financial perspective, we have this debate a lot. We only sell asparagus for the 10 weeks it's in season. Beautiful from the new forest. But uh, who are we to say that, you know, the Peruvians should, should not be able to export something that's dragging them economically out of third world conditions and giving them the money to build, you know, better education, send their kids to school and all that kind of stuff. So I, I find that side of it. Uh, complicated as well, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And, and I guess, you know, as a restaurant, this comes back to the T-shaped thing, right? There's always going to be con contrary points to make around any fixed issue, right? Uh, of course, uh, supporting global farmers means buying things from far away. Um, I, th I think if that's genuinely what gets you out of bed in the morning as a business, just, just make sure there's internal consistency uh, rather than kind of using it as a kind of put down to an argument I, I guess if if uh supporting lifting people out of poverty is what you're doing as a business uh really stay there 
and and then that can help you think about your sourcing decisions you know is that more or less important than carbon intensity i guess you know that's not for me to decide but uh, i think people expect businesses to be transparent and coherent and uh, and i think that they're the kind of two things to try and live by mm. And even more so now, I guess, with uh, social media and access to information, it, it felt historically that the uh, information was very much top down. It was government and government working very much in partnership with agriculture and the meat and the dairy industry, telling us what we should be eating and, you know, 70% carbs and 20% protein, 10% fat. Whereas now there feels like through through Netflix and, uh, and Amazon kind of documentaries and social media that the, 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 it's shifting and that the consumer or the, the smaller scale documentary makers are maybe cutting through. But then we have that danger of fake news and what's actually... Uh, real, I guess that's where the SRA can help by by filtering through some of the information and saying, well, actually, yeah, you know, helping Peruvian farmers in this way is is one part of the issue, but you can look into it in a in a more uh, holistic or or a more kind of fully encompassing way, I suppose. Yeah, I'd agree that, with that. that. That would be the hope, at least. Um, you mentioned just now uh, three areas that you look at. So this is under your your food made good framework, I think. Sourcing society environment is quite a big kind of the crux of your framework, I suppose. Can you just give a couple of examples of what do you mean by that, by, by those three fairly uh, simple words, but there's quite a lot behind each one of those, I think, isn't there? Yeah, so um, I probably should have a copy of our framework in front of me, but uh, I, I guess in the sourcing, um, that's obviously about kind of what you buy. Uh, we look at kind of local and seasonal. We look at uh, more veg and better meat. We look at um, sourcing fish responsibly. Um, I think under the kind of society umbrella, we look at kind of treating people fairly, uh, in particular the, your staff. We look at supporting global farmers and we look at kind of supporting the community and feeding people well. Um, and then environment, I guess it's more of the kind of hard metrics around kind of energy, water, waste, carbon. We look at food waste. We look at uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. Okay. And it is a really useful way of, yeah, you know, not just starting with the huge Google global picture, but actually focusing in some areas that you guys have obviously spent a lot of time doing some work on and coming up with a framework, which which has got some some quick wins in it. And actually it just reminded me because um, we, we were members uh, very much in the early days and then just decided to um, to crack on and, and, and action a load of stuff ourselves um, just you know, without that framework. But it was a great reminder going back onto the website last night and it, it got me thinking about some of the things that we can do. I mean, I, I guess the point of the framework, right, is is not just to point at what the problems are, uh, but to sort of get a little bit more editorial on what should we actually do. Um, I, I think there's a truth of that framework is that on every area, there's quite a high amount of abatement potential, Um which is, I guess, the difference between average practice and what some restaurants are already doing. Uh, one person's is impossible is someone else's. I did that two years ago, right? And I think uh, being the CEO of the SRA means people kind of ask you fundamentally big and difficult questions quite regularly. But actually, all I'm trying to do is narrow the gap between uh, average and best uh, around all of that stuff. I'm not trying to uh, help restaurants do the impossible but I think if we can get kind of the whole industry up to the level of some of the best on food waste, and if we can get the whole industry up to the level of some of the best on sourcing fish sustainably, uh, then that's enough. It's a, it's a great objective to have. Um, the other way to, to trigger change is obviously this is this is predominantly voluntary. You're requiring on people to uh, to buy a membership. You're educating them. You're working with them. Uh, legislation is obviously one of the other key ways that we can potentially fast track some of this stuff. Um, How's the UK doing from that perspective, I suppose, around 
sustainability and food and where it comes from from a legislation perspective? And is there any stuff that you would like to see the UK government do uh, differently and faster? I think we've got a relatively developed set of kind of on-farm agricultural legislation. Um, yeah, without sort of getting stuck on kind of what's happening politically at the moment. Um, I think that there's relatively little uh, regulation legislation uh, for businesses. Um, we have quite a kind of Anglo-Saxon laissez-faire attitude to uh, business regulation compared to a lot of other places. Um, Scotland are kind of a long way ahead of what we're doing in other parts of the UK and they've used devolution to provide a better set of um, economic drivers to businesses to do the right thing. And if you look at places like France, they're uh, a long, long way ahead. I guess they have a kind of philosophy of uh, um, more kind of government-led uh, rules and regulations rather than letting businesses kind of reach voluntary agreement on the right thing. So I, I think, um, you know, massive caveat that uh, there's this thing called the uh, agriculture bill and uh, fisheries bill and, and it's all completely up in the air and it's just in draft at the moment and, and, and that might kind of lead to a kind of a lot of changes. From a restaurant point of view, it's kind of difficult to know what to do about that other than to kind of sit and wait for a bit more certainty. I think um, what we'd really like government to do is to provide better incentives for uh, restaurants to do the right thing. It shouldn't be a kind of moral choice that creates martyrs because um, ultimately that just won't mean uh, uh, the, the pace is achieved that we need according to those two big environmental problems that we said at the start. And I've got uh, hope. I, I think that um, just from a kind of very cynical kind of business perspective, um, you know, people like UK Hospitality are out there doing great work kind of lobbying government uh, on behalf of the sector, but they're actually asking for quite expensive things like uh, business rate reduction for all hotels, restaurants and pubs. Uh, I guess we'd say only for the sustainable ones, and that, and that sounds a bit cheaper to me. I think if we can kind of uh, make taxation and business rates kind of progressive and dependent upon performance, we think it should be uh, more economically advantageous uh, to open a kind of uh, social enterprise community cafe serving largely plant-based meals um, and redistribution surplus to homeless people than it is to open another fried chicken shop. Uh, but right now, uh, that's not there. So I, I think there's a, a series of quite tailored interventions government can make around that kind of business context. Sounds good. Are there any examples? You mentioned Scotland and France being further ahead. Are there any examples of something they're doing differently that the UK or that England could adopt? Uh, I think the big one's probably kind of food waste management. Um, both Scotland and uh, France have kind of uh, legal minimum requirements on businesses around kind of measurement, separation, reporting and reduction on food waste. Um, that's fueling a lot more going edible food, uh, entering a kind of uh, being, you know, fed to someone needy. Uh, but it's also avoiding the kind of great environmental problem of food waste going into landfill. Um, so both Scotland and France are kind of doing a lot better job on that by basically making it compulsory. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's a relatively easy one to resolve. Not so much, I suppose, what gets wasted, although you'd think any decent restaurant is going to go out of business if it wastes too much food. But certainly what happens with that waste, there are, I, I would presume, collection uh, facilities in most towns now to take that food waste and do something better with it than chuck it in landfill. So that, that, that feels like the solution is there. It's just the motivation for people to do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it all gets really complicated, doesn't it? And I'm conscious that uh, I don't want to leave people feeling kind of 
yeah, wallowing in the number of issues and the complexity of it all. I, I think there are some really kind of simple ways to kind of simplify and there are some win-wins uh, that are kind of good for business and good for the planet. And I think, you know, f- fundamentally we need, you know, to keep what's kind of brilliant about kind of independent hospitality, but also try to kind of lead as well as just feed. And I, I think it's not enough to kind of wait for diners to kind of start demanding stuff and think I'll change then. Um, I think, you know, if we look at how little we value food and understand its provenance, you know, hospitality you could see as a victim there, but you could also see as a cause um, and maybe even it could be a cure. And I think that if you want to have a really kind of simple story about what we need to try and achieve, um, I think not throwing meat in the bin might might be my current favourite. Um, you could talk about a story of a, a little calf that is born on the space side in Scotland and then is kind of live trucked down to Spain so it can be fattened in uh, a, a less regulatory environment in terms of welfare and feed uh, before being uh, slaughtered and then sent to a a hotel in northern Africa for a Scottish people to be on holiday at an all-you-can-eat buffet before loading up, but they're already six pints in and then uh, the, the, the meat goes in the bin. I, th- I think there's a sort of alignment of interest that, that it will increasingly see that as kind of morally unacceptable, uh, whether it's about kind of animal sentience or whether it's about the carbon footprint or whether it's about health or just the kind of waste agenda. Um, so if you're as a business throwing quite a lot of meat away, or if you don't know how much you're throwing away, I think maybe start there. And I think that could be a really good, uh, way of doing some quite high impact win-win changes around both procurement, menu design, development, and, and waste management. I think, you know, something about when you start kind of getting all geeky on measuring food waste is everything ends up just being a a kind of weight equivalent and, you know, kind of cauliflower leaves become undifferentiated from tuna. Um, I think if we can sort of run businesses that aim to throw no meat in the bin and and, uh, educate customers about uh, what choices you've made to make that not the case, um, I think that's a really cool place to start. Hmm. Talking about food waste and animals going in the bin, I suppose I remember chatting to James from Cabrito Goats, who I think is one of your members and, and almost creating an industry around goat meat. But it blew my mind and I'd never really thought about it, but you know, most people eat goat's cheese, but very few people eat goat's meat. Every you know mummy goat gives birth to two goats, a male and a female. And in France alone, there's a million billy goats being euthanized at birth and, and thrown in the bin because there's no market for them. And if people just move from lamb to goat once a month, then that would create a market. And then these, these billy goats would at least live kind of, you know, eight or nine months and wouldn't be such a waste in the system. So then you go into the debate, should we be eating meat at all? Or then should we even be eating goat's cheese and the complexities around it? But yeah, there feels like there's some, some quick wins, I suppose, around some of that waste. Yeah. And, and James does a fantastic job. And um, we were very proud to serve uh, Kid Goat at our awards last year to 350 chefs. Um, you know, we, we did a um, kid goat uh, kibber, like a kind of chopped uh, Syrian dish. Delicious. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a useful way of um, getting people to try and think about their own personal responsibility. I guess ultimately I don't believe that people need to kind of, you know, balance the checkbook of their own diets that says if they're eating goat's cheese, then 
they need to deal with, you know, ev- everything that's alive on Earth uh, occupies space that means that something else isn't. And I, I, I think that it's, it's a kind of tough expectation to have on people to kind of get knowledgeable enough about all of those trade-offs. Um, but yeah, it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Well, even in the industry, it's, it's, uh, it's an eternal challenge to become knowledgeable enough. And, I, and like I said, I've always, with everything that we've sold, I've always wanted to be able to look my customer in the eye. That's the key decision we make when we're looking through menus is can I look the customer in the eye and justify why we're selling that? And uh, the, the more knowledgeable you come, the more difficult it gets to the point where you don't sell anything and go and get a different job. But, um, but we're all going to eat. Um, fish is the other one that blows my mind when you look at uh, bycatch and the challenges around uh, quotas and, and, and with what's happening at the moment with, with Europe. Um, but that's uh, and then, and then, you know, moving into, and this may not be the case anymore, but with the Marine Stewardship Council, when we looked at uh, salmon as an example, the MSC accredited salmon was caught off the Alaskan coast, frozen at sea, sent to China for packaging, and then redistributed around the world, which might be sustainable from a fish stocks perspective of not catching the wild salmon in Scotland, but to most people, you know, wouldn't perceive that, I suppose, as a, as a particularly sustainable solution from a food miles perspective. So again, there's there's complexities behind that to the point where, you know, we'll make the decision to just buy from the from the day boats and what they can catch locally, pretty much. But uh, yeah, any thoughts, any quick thoughts on fish before we wrap up? I mean, fish is one of the kind of fieriest arguments we have internally with our stakeholders, I guess, about uh, our definition of good, better, best. I think, um, you know, any certification scheme, be it kind of sustainable fish or organic or the SRA is, you know, to some extent flawed. It, it involves a paywall, it involves a process that not everyone can afford. It involves certain kind of normative judgments on, you know, what's good and what's not. Um, so you'll always have a sense that the kind of hyper-local, hyper-sustainable uh, sits outside of certification. But then that same argument is used for some quite destructive uh, greenwash. So you kind of end up chasing your own tail a little bit. I think um, if you look at you know the big thing that's happening in, in quantitative terms uh, around certification at the moment is the kind of movement away from fair trade. I think Sainsbury's announced that they're replacing it with fairly traded, which is their own kind of kind of reflexive definition of the same thing. Um, I, th- I think certification is a kind of flawed but necessary object that we that we should uh, respect and i think that at the sra on fish um we do a lot of i guess quite manual work with people around their seafood policy um and helping people to have better conversations with their uh supplier i think um it it will often be, you know, crystal ball time. It will often be maybe a sort of better environmental choice to get something very small scale uh, and locally uh, that doesn't have any proven stuff. <laughs> uh, but then it comes down to judgment. And I think that judgment, you know, comes from a conversation and that conversation should be better informed. I think uh, it's a problem when chefs are kind of swallowing whole kind of definitions of sustainability from their suppliers uh, uncritically and I think certification is one way of solving that um, I think another way is kind of trying to kind of uplift the level of knowledge and ask some of the right questions um, but yeah uh, very complicated uh, I, th- I think you know in terms of UK fisheries policy um, you know over half our quota goes to about three firms at the moment so that there's a there's a real prospect for change uh, in the next kind of few years I think there's um some good arguments that I find convincing that we should be 
um, labelling all um, UK water caught fish as sustainable, any bycatch, rather than um, creating behaviours in which that's kind of chucked over um, because it can't be sold. Um, I, th- I think we work with a lot of restaurants trying to look at species diversity and like beyond the big five, as as we call it. Um, but yeah, um, a super complicated issue. It I is, yeah. For me, accreditation was always kind of a base point. I always thought we shouldn't go below fair trade, we shouldn't go below MSC standards, but actually they're, they're fairly low base points. You can do a lot better uh, than that. Um, but I think, you know, particularly on fish, what you get is you get uh, red rated where there isn't sufficient data, right? So red can mean we don't know as well as it's definitely bad. And I think that's particularly quite complicated because then you'll have quite a polarised argument between a kind of local fisherman saying this is the most sustainable fish you can get and uh, an accreditation scheme calling it Category 5. Um, and, so, you know, that, that that has the impact of it kind of being wiped out of procurement specs. Um, mm. Yeah, and then that's always complicated because you just look up a, a fish like cod and then you find out, well, actually, there's, you know, there's 27 different uh, species of cod and actually some of them are okay and some of them aren't okay. And like you say, we want to diversify from the main five. Um, I'm conscious that A, we're out of time and B, the, the, any consumers out there will be walking around with their minds blown. So I, th- I personally feel there's a responsibility and a lot of uh, education that we can do as a sector to help uh, train people and to to have an influence on supply and on, on what we're asking from our suppliers and on providing some alternatives and some reasons for those alternatives from the consumer. But is there anything from for the consumer who's walking around out there listening to this in their earpiece, are there any kind of quick wins or, or things you would say, please do this either today, tomorrow or in the next month that they can take away with this that just makes it feel less complicated for them? I think that uh, your appetite is tremendously powerful. And the food choices that you make uh, can be a vote for a more sustainable food system and fast. So that's partly about where you choose to go and spend your money, um, but also about what you choose when you get in there. So trying to find uh, restaurants, be they independents or chains that are part of schemes like the SRA is, you know, we wouldn't exist if we didn't think that was a, a, a vote in the right direction for where you spend your money. But then you know, having an SRA sticker in the window isn't a moral offset for going and ordering a surf and turf. I think um, talk to restaurants about sustainability and what the most sustainable choices are on their menu and, and, and support those as well as supporting kind of the restaurants themselves. Mm, perfect. Uh, where can people go to find out more? And if, uh, if there's people out there who want to join, is it only restaurants that, and food producers that can join? Do you have a, a public sort of members uh, membership as well, a consumer membership? Or? No, we haven't cooked that up yet. I, I, I think uh, probably the most delicious page that we uh, run on the internet is called oneplanetplate.org where you've got about a thousand recipes for uh, variously sustainable dishes that answer some of these different challenges we've been talking about. So uh, that's a great place to go to look at uh, chefs and restaurants that are doing interesting things on the menu, but also you've got all of the kind of recipe information there to kind of cook at home. So, so that's a kind of fab resource from sort of kale and carrot top pesto to uh, Raymond's kind of 15 different roast heritage beetroot terrine. So depending on how ambitious you're feeling this afternoon, a couple of options there. I think for uh, restaurants themselves and people in the hospitality industry, um, it's the sra.org and uh, that's where you'll find out about I guess, what we do to try and help you um, 
make steps in the right direction. Amazing, good. Uh, I, I personally feel that we're on a really positive tra trajectory. I think the changes I've seen in the last two or three years uh, of this growing momentum from consumer pressure and, and also just knowledge, and like I say, the documentaries that are now available online, uh, means that it's uh, it's a bit late, but the trajectory is positive. But thank you for what you do and what the SRA do. I think it's great. And uh, thank you for sparing the time today. I know I've pushed you right beyond your uh, time limits. It's been uh, a pleasure. appreciate thank you very much. Thank you. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk, for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days' time. Cheers. Cheers.